I'm El Kamihira, and welcome to the very first episode of Subject to Power. Between extreme inequalities, climate chaos, perpetual wars, we live in a deeply insecure world, some more than others. And my guest today, Dr. Valerie Hudson, has spent her career trying to figure out what the factors are that make nations insecure, unstable, volatile, and violent. Dr. Valerie Hudson is an expert on international security and foreign policy analysis, as well as gender and security. In 2009, foreign policy named her one of the top 100 most influential global thinkers. She's the author of Bear Branches, Security Implications of Asia's Surplus Male Population, Sex and World Peace, and her most recent book, The First Political Order, How Sex Shapes Governance and National Security Worldwide. Dr. Hudson also developed something called Woman Stats Database, which is the largest cross-national compilation of data, statistics, and maps on the status of women worldwide. And in her latest book, The First Political Order, she makes crucial connections between the status of women and the fates of nations. She shows that the systematic subordination of women really underlies all other institutions we have and how this subordination of women functions as a curse upon nations and the world. I talked to Dr. Hudson about her work and so much more. Have a listen. So how did you find our book? I'm just curious. I've been talking to Grant Wyeth, who I've interviewed a few times. He posted it on Twitter saying I'm obsessed with this book because it just gets to so much. And so I got it right away and found it kind of revelatory, actually. And maybe I'm just like, (laughs) I mean, maybe I'm naive. I know you've been, you know, you've been at this for a very long time dealing with this issue from your viewpoint and conceptualization. And I just think it's so right on. Mm -hmm. And, and this is where we have to look. Um, There's so much I want to get into. Maybe tell me a little bit your road into the work. What was the impetus for, you know, how did you come at it? Yeah, this, uh, this particular book is kind of what I view as my magnum opus. It kind of represents everything that I've sort of picked up and learned and put together over the last 20 years or so. Oh, gosh, probably even closer to 30 years now. (laughs) So it is kind of like a mind dump. I, I was very much hopeful that the book would not stay an academic book, but reach, you know, folks exactly like yourself for whom it would be kind of helpful in terms of framing and seeing how various pieces that might not intuitively be connected, how they all actually do connect and what all of the various tentacles are in terms of all the many levels of things that this creates. I absolutely did not start out as even a feminist. I was in graduate school doing my PhD, and you could have taken every class in my PhD program and not known that there were women on the planet Earth. You know, it really was in security studies and international relations. It was really a very womanless world. And I absorbed that and, you know, didn't really question it at all. And then kind of in the 90s, I began to ask those 
kinds of questions. So for example, I can't even remember the reason that I was looking at Chinese history and rebellions in Chinese history and reading marvelous works by Elizabeth Perry at Princeton. And she was arguing that one of the most important but not very well noted aspects of these rebellions is that they they tended to originate in in areas of China where the sex ratios were horrible, right? Where families were just culling girls from the birth population. And so the Chinese even had a special term for these, you know, the boys for whom there were no matching girls. They called them bare branches. And she argued that, you know, this was obviously due to greater valuation of sons in a context where patrilineal clans were kind of the governing structure. And I mean, she explained why parents would do that. But what I thought was fascinating is that she then linked it right downstream to the chronic and destabilizing problems that, you know, the Chinese regime faced as a result of this behavior. And I remember reading all of this and going to bed one night and waking up in the middle of the night, as you sometimes do, like totally awake with the name of a book, you know, the book that I would write in my head and how that, in fact, this history was recreating itself right, right in front of our eyes and that nobody was talking about this link between, you know, what you do to women winds up affecting your nation state, even big things like national security. So that book, Bare Branches, was kind of my first foray into seeing that there was uh, actually uh, a, a pretty dang tight and significant relationship between what you were doing to women and, and what would happen to peace and prosperity in your nation state. And then uh, at the time I was doing this, I was like, well, okay, let me get a lot of data on women, because at the turn of the century, we were all hearing things like, well, this is very nice. I like your anecdotes, but come back when you have some hard data. (laughs) So I thought, well, okay, I can do that. I know how to do, I know how to do data. I know how to do statistical analyses and uh, went out there to discover that there was hardly any data, right? Um, I mean, the situation has changed tremendously, but at the turn of the century, there was nothing. Um, I mean, Wistat, right? The UN had, you know, a couple of dozen indicators about women and that was that was it. And that's not what I wanted to see. I wanted to look at things like bride price and dowry and polygyny and patrilocal marriage and, and things no one was collecting data about. People are still not collecting data about it. So I had to create the Women's Stats database. <laughs> we started out with 27 variables. I think we've got like over 300 variables now. And it was that database that allowed me to ask questions that previously could not be answered and, you know, begin to tie this all together. So even though I had never envisioned at all when I started my PhD that I would be kind of concentrating in this particular area, it became, I think, the the primary thrust of, of my career. And so this, this book that came out, The First Political Order, is kind of the the magnum opus about that topic. 
Yes. And you draw on so many things and there are so many, so many different sciences, so many different disciplines, biology, evolutionary biology, history, science. I highly recommend it to anyone who's interested in gender anything. Somewhere in the beginning of the book, you explain that the human gender relationship is really different from other animals and mammals, particularly Um, And I don't think people know that. Yeah, we and chimpanzees and uh, a couple other primate species are known for something kind of weird, which is male coalitionary aggression, not against other species, (laughs) uh, but against our own species. So... um, This is actually weird. I mean, again, you might think of it as males are like this in every species. That's not true, right? Is is that uh, a couple of primate species took this very strange track where they would band together in male kin groups and aggress in order to gain resources, which could be land, any forms of wealth, women, of course, and that this creates sort of a self-reinforcing feedback because the the more that these coalitionary teams are successful, the less secure every male feels. And so it actually tightens the logic that this male coalition is the center of all things in the society. Yeah, which then... I think it's a super, super, super common myth that we all kind of rely on is that male violence and possessiveness of the kind we see today originated with agriculture and the owning of land. And your book and your theories really turns that on its head and reverses the evolution of that, that really well, you can explain better than I can. <laughs> well, yeah, we, we think obviously this coalitionary aggression predates agriculture. You know, agriculture gives it a, a special uh, frisson, if you will, as uh, <laughs> you, can, um, you can grow those coalitions, you know, to really large size, right? You know, once you have more stationary populations. But, but yeah, this this first political order of centering male coalitions and subordinating female interests absolutely predates agriculture. There's no doubt about that. And that perhaps the patriarchal rule sort of grew out of that coalitional violence rather than. Yes, yes, that's exactly the way that we see it, is that when you center the male coalition as the fountain, if you will, of all security and all uh, wealth within a society, uh, once you make that choice as a society, then all of these downstream consequences, including the overt subordination of females, follows logically, right? (laughs) It's just, uh, it's part and parcel of of centering this coalition. Yeah. I don't think we take gender inequality seriously enough, but you say extreme gender inequality in the human species is a form of violence. And that's a strong statement. How do you, how do you, how do you get to that? 
Well, I, you know, I, I think it's when we actually strip away, you know, the abstract um, words and, and look at what female subordination means that the violence becomes almost too much to bear, right? It's uh, the little girls who are not fed when their brothers are fed. It's the, the boys who get taken into the doctor to be immunized, but the girls are not immunized. It's things like honor violence, because the honor of a woman is actually more important than her chastity. I mean, there's, there's practice upon practice, and there's all sorts of discriminatory laws. I mean, even to this day in certain countries, women are not allowed to own land because only men are allowed to be the landowners in the society. Women are just some type of subhuman creature. And of course, as we were mentioning, um, sex selective abortion and female infanticide, where having two X chromosomes is, is viewed as the worst birth defect you know, a child could have. I mean, when you really start peeling it back and taking a look at exactly how women are subordinated, I mean, the phrase women are subordinated sounds pretty dang antiseptic, doesn't it? Sounds like something vaguely wrong is happening. But when you look at the means by which women are subordinated, these are violent means. These are inhumane means. And we, I don't think we can shy away from facing that truth if we actually want to begin to rectify some of the problems we face as humankind. Yeah. So kind of the centerpiece of the book, The First Political Order, is something you refer to as the syndrome or the patrilineal fraternal syndrome. Can you try to put that into lay, <laughs> lay terms? Yeah, what, what we were trying to get across with that is that shouldn't it strike you as odd that despite the fact that we have a, a very large planet and in all sorts of different ethnic groups, many of which would never have ever come in contact with each other, that we still end up with generalized female subordination across the entire planet. Uh, and that many of the practices look exactly the same in Nepal as they do in Ecuador. And you're like, how, how possibly could this happen? And so we hope that we made a contribution by suggesting that it is the choice to center these male coalitions and that the tightest coalitions are blood-based coalitions, kin-based coalitions. Now, you, you can certainly have male coalitions that are not based on kin. Uh, when you think, for example, of gangs or even military units and things of that nature, you can, you can begin to forge these fraternal bonds in other ways. But Traditionally, the way that you build a male coalition is organically through biological bonds. And so to do that, to create a patrilineally based society where the true family is the patriline, grandfather, father, son, grandson, where all resources stay with that patrilineal line and that women are excluded. Women marry out. Women aren't allowed to hold land. Women, you know, are just have so few rights. They're not even considered part of their own families, and they aren't considered part of the families they marry into. That it is the patriline that is the family in the society. And the purpose of the patriline is to create that fraternity, that male coalition, 
that can not only protect the patriline, but aggress and expand against other patrilines and thereby gain power in the society. So when we say patrilineal fraternal, we included both terms because you create the patriline for the purposes of creating the fraternity. And it is the fraternity that is the center of power within these societies. So we looked at all it would take, right? Or what sorts of practices attend every very disparate society's attempt to center the male coalition. And so we came up with 11 indicators that we thought were very telling, very revealing that this was happening. And so it would be high levels of violence against women. It would be things like patrilocal marriage. It would be things such as polygyny, bride price, dowry, cousin marriage, inequitable law, low age of marriage for girls, no property rights for women. But those are kind of the things that you would need in order to create that kind of society. And, and that's why these things are so universal. Regardless of space, regardless of time, you see these practices popping up all over the place in human history and even in contemporary times. I wanted to get into the patrilocal marriage, particularly for a second, the significance of it, I guess, as a strategy, as a male strategy. What does it do exactly? What is the, the purpose and gain? Yeah, I think patrilocal marriage is, is really one of the very most effective ways of subordinating women. And I think we women in the West who don't see a lot of patrilocal marriage think to ourselves that this must be some strange little custom in tiny little places or something like that. But it's actually the norm which is that if the family is the male line, then women marry out from their family. And this puts into motion a whole series of really rotten consequences for everybody involved. So her birth family doesn't consider her really part of the family. Uh, in fact, we have sayings from all over the world, a daughter is a thief. Raising a daughter is like watering a plant in another man's garden. The birth family looks at her and says, we're going to have her for, you know, 12 to 14 years. And then she's going to go be, you know, she's going to move. We're not even maybe even going to see her. And certainly none of her children are going to belong to our family. So her birth family then will underinvest in her. They'll underinvest emotionally, stealing themselves against the time when this girl is going to leave. They'll underinvest financially. If there's any cost to educating or providing medical care for girls, they're going to say, well, why would we do that? Uh, food in calorie restricted areas, boys are going to get fed before girls are, again, because these, these uh, girls are not really part of your family. And then you're going to want to marry them off as soon as possible, which depresses the age of marriage in society. And you do that for two reasons. Number one, you don't want to keep paying for room and board. That's a total cost to your family. And then second, you know, once she hits puberty, you've got to safeguard her honor, which carries all sorts of incredible costs. And so you want to get her out the door upon puberty. Some societies even get them out the door before puberty and send them off to go live in the other household. Well, once she gets to the other household, 
you know, they're glad that she's there, but she's an outsider. She's considered the kind of the lowest person in the entire household. And her husband may not even be her champion, right? That is to say that she may not get a champion until she bears that first son. And heaven forbid that she bear a daughter right? instead. But if she bears a son, that son is hers. That's, that's the, the human being to whom she will have the tightest relationship. Now think about that. That means that when that son takes a wife, the mother is predisposed to absolutely to test this girl because she is a threat to the only positive human relationship that she has because her birth family is not emotionally invested in her. Her husband is not emotionally invested in her. Her daughters are going to leave. So it centers, if you will, the mother-son relationship, which then sabotages a whole new generation. So it really makes families kind of emotionally dysfunctional. And it's really, I think, tragic. It's, of course, first and foremost, tragic for the women who, you know, who's their family? Who actually cares about these women? <laughs> but it, there's emotional fallout. There's emotional fallout for sons. There's an emotional fallout for daughters. It's almost like you're, you're almost crippling every member of these families and making them almost dysfunctional from the get-go. So that's why patrilocal marriage is so important. And there's, you know, knock-on effects like property rights for women make no sense in a patrilocal society because why would this stranger who's coming into your household ever be given any sort of property rights at all? Like it doesn't make any sense. So it naturalizes other forms of discrimination against women, such as marrying them off at puberty, refusing to give them property rights, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's great. I just want to tie it into. So in domestic violence relationship, one common tactic is to move away from her family, to isolate her away from her female kin group. And so it, it kind of echoes with what you're saying. It's like the man gains an advantage because she is cut off from her family, her kin group, female most, most especially. That's absolutely right. Um, absolutely right. Whatever support her family would have been predisposed to give her once she moves far enough away, that's not going to be operative in her life. So yeah, I, I can't think of a, a more effective way to make a woman basically prostrate in terms of being completely without a support group than patrilocal marriage. Yeah. You say something else, too, is that violence, these male kin groups use violence because it works. And so I wanted to get into that. W what does that mean? Oh, it actually absolutely gets you what you want. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it can get you sex. It can get you labor. It can uh, get you resources. Violence absolutely works. And I think the only way that humankind has begun to civilize itself is to refuse to allow violence to work. And we're we're definitely <laughs> moving in that direction. But for me, and probably for you as well, what we've noticed 
is that there's still relative impunity for men who use violence against women. The consequences of using violence against men may be much higher than the consequences of using violence against women, where women are not believed or women are uh, abused by law enforcement or male law enforcement is simply uninterested in enforcing the law. It, it's it, judges, prosecutors, all, all part of this. I mean, I've been very struck by the, the data coming out of the UK, which basically argues that for all intents and purposes, rape has been decriminalized in the UK, that in only 1.3% of the cases of reported rape, does a perpetrator wind up behind bars. So that means yeah. that your chances of getting away with rape are like 98%. And that doesn't even include all of the cases that were not reported because the women just did the calculations in their head and said, not even going to report it. So it may be more than 99% of rapes are affected with complete impunity under the law, even in civilized Great Britain. So this, this strange, but very real impunity offered to men who commit violence against women is still a stain, I think, on human civilization. Yeah, agreed. And I mean, when it comes to domestic violence in particular, the violent crimes that are being committed would be punishable by criminal statutes in any other context. But because it's in a domestic context against the woman, it just doesn't count as a criminal. It doesn't even go to criminal court. It goes to family court. And in some countries, they've actually kind of explicitly said that. I mean, I'm sure you're aware that in Russia, they changed the domestic violence laws. So the first time you beat up your wife, it's a pass. Unless she's dead, <laughs> you don't get prosecuted. Uh, and then subsequent times, they will only charge you if she winds up in the hospital. So if she doesn't wind up in the hospital, again, the authorities are not predisposed to do anything. So sometimes the mask is dropped and, and we can actually see that in law. These women have no support system, just like we were talking about with patrilocal marriage. It's getting rid of women's supports that is the foundation, I think, of all of this. For sure. So that begs the question, why do so many women kind of ally with stronger men, violent men, because they do. As, as women, I think we are, we absolutely are drawn to powerful men. I think that's a fair thing to say, even if some of us aren't, <laughs> have other requirements. But so what? what is that about? What? Oh, well, I think that's pretty, pretty darn understandable. As an international relations scholar, we often talk about the role of anarchy, that there is nothing above nation states that can say to Russia, stop, don't invade Ukraine. You know, it's a self-help system, isn't it? And so that means that the people who are going to be able to help you the most are the most powerful men. But what I think most women eventually discover to their great heartache, that the man who could protect you the best against other men is also the man who will beat you into a bloody pulp if his will is opposed. It's a contradiction, but it's also, in a sense, kind of logical that a woman seek a partner who is able to protect her from external threats, but then he himself 
becomes the greatest threat. Yeah, some men, I guess, have a kind of a code where violence against other men is okay, but violence against women are not. So they abide by that code, but a lot of men don't. A lot of men don't. I call it, I call it the 30M problem. I will tell you what that means. I haven't written anything about this, but it's certainly been, I've been thinking about it a lot, which is, are all men like this? Because society kind of runs on the lowest common denominator. It's unfortunately, that's always the case. We always get the lowest common denominator. Uh, And certainly many of the men in my life are absolutely wonderful, sterling human beings. My husband, my sons, you know, some of my close uh, friends who are men, I mean, are just fantastic humans. And a few years ago, you may remember, there was a cross-national survey that came out that queried men on a whole bunch of questions. But one of the questions included was, if you knew 100% surety, that if you raped a woman, you could get away with it completely, would you do it? And about 30% of men cross-nationally said yes. Now, the good side of that is 70% said no, but 30%, almost a third (laughs) said yes. And so I do believe that that's a big enough proportion to completely distort what we otherwise could have in our societies. And that um, until and unless we sort of take on this 30M problem, that we're not going to see as much in the way of progress as we would like. So for example, naive Westerner like me, I think of countries such as Iceland, Sweden, maybe even Norway as being sort of paradises for women where these things are in the past. But But no, Iceland has a very high domestic violence rate. Sweden has one of the highest domestic violence rates in all of Europe. Even the societies that we think most have instantiated um, gender equality still have a stubbornly high domestic violence rate. But again, it's not the majority. We're not saying over 50% of women. No, but it's stubborn at about one in four women. And that kind of jibes with this 30M problem that we have. So I I do think that we have to ask ourselves in Western societies about the 30M problem. In societies that are still locked in the syndrome, there's other things that we need to tackle first, like age of marriage and property rights and, you know, just making it possible for women to live lives with some measure of control. Uh, if you're talking about Afghanistan, that's a different set of issues that you would concentrate on than if you were Sweden. Even Sweden's got something it needs to concentrate on. In Sweden, another stubborn problem is femicide, the outright murder of women by the closest male person in their lives. And I, I just wanted to dig into that a little bit more. You write that what happens in the home What's allowed to happen in the home is a micro template for what happens on a much larger scale. Can you connect all of those things? Yeah, yeah, that's that's one of our most important hypotheses in the book, which is that if your households are run like autocracies with the use of terror and accompanying exploitation and so forth, then all of that is going to be normalized for you. That is, autocracy is going to seem like the legitimate way to run a government. The use of terror and violence is going to seem 
par for the course. That's how you resolve a conflict. Exploitation, rontierism, all of these sorts of things, corruption is, is going to seem just the way things are. So we do posit kind of a direct link and, you know, we make sort of, you know, empirical predictions, which is that in places that encode the syndrome the most, you're, you're going to find no free countries. You're going to find countries that are at extremely high risk for terror. And that's exactly what we find. So we do think that this, this first political order then sets the template for the, the political order of the entire society. And the first political order, if you can just kind of explain what that means, the kind of underpinning of other political orders more specifically. I think that centuries, right, of feminist thought, looking at, you know, people from Engels, John Stuart Mill, Mary Wollstonecraft, Carol Pateman, Gerda Lerner in the 20th century. I mean, we have a lot of feminist work now that I think suggests that the first political order in any society is, is in fact the relationship between the two sexes and that how a society decides to order that relationship is going to be the founding template, as we talked about, for all superstructures within the society. And so sometimes I, I say to my class uh, that I teach, a class called Women and Nations, I say, you know, let's pretend for a moment that we're in a video game design class. And I want you to make a game for me. And I'm only going to give you two parameters. One is that you have kind of these two groups of players, both of which constitute about half of your population. And the second parameter is unless they cooperate, there's no second round. It's all over. Make me a game. And the students are always like, well, you haven't told us enough. You got to tell us more, Professor Hudson. And I'm like, well, what do you want me to tell you? And then... They start asking me questions that reveal the political nature of this relationship. They say, well, well are, are these two groups like equals to each other or is one like a superior group and one is like an inferior group? How are decisions made? You know, does it require both sets of players to agree or can one group impose decisions on the other group? And if the interests of the two groups clash, how is that resolved? Is it resolved by violence or is it resolved by compromise? And then, of course, they asked me the, the queen of all political questions, which is how are resources distributed between these two groups? Does one group have a monopoly on wealth and land and you know power or are, are resources shared equally? And I say bingo. <laughs> you have just revealed that the sexual political order is, in fact, the very first political order in any society. So even if you had a society in which there were no ethnic differences, no language differences, no racial differences, no religious differences, you would still have the first difference. And that first difference would be the foundation of the first politics. Yeah, so that's what's meant by the first political order. There are obviously many other sort of social contracts that's modeled on, like in this country, for example, the racial contract, the European population colonizing mm -hmm. uh, indigenous lands and resources. So it, it provides a model, it seems. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, 
there's been fantastic work done by uh, scholars that look at how vulnerable peoples, minority groups or colonized groups have been overtly feminized, that how women are seen then translates almost directly into how these groups are seen as being less intelligent, as being weaker, as being, you know, all sorts of things. So clearly that first template of difference of making females subordinate to males is, is applied directly when, when coalitionary male groups are attempting to subordinate other groups that include men. One more thing about uh, violence before we move on to how do we disrupt these systems. We talk about wartime and peacetime often in a Western society where we have war that's active male-on-male conflict in a large setting. And then we have peacetime when we thrive and so on. But in Sex and World Peace, you talk about that where is the peace for women. Can you elaborate? Yeah, there is no peacetime for women. I mean, that's something that, you know, when I say that, people are like, what? What are you talking about? And then they sort of sit back and I say, well, let's think about it. And and it's, of course, it differs how I approach this issue, whether the person is a male or a female. Females know right away what I'm talking about. I say, so, uh, you know, do you feel completely safe walking in your town? Do you feel safe going outside of your house after dark? Or is home even a safe place for you? And I joke with my students. I say, you know, how many of you saw the Jason Bourne movies? And a lot of them have. And I say, remember that that scene where in the first film where Jason Bourne is sitting down with this woman in a cafe and he goes, you know, I, I, I know every exit. I, I know who at the bars is going to be the ones that I have the most problem with. I know which cars probably have guns in them. I know how long I can run flat out before I collapse. And how do I know all this? And I, I say, well, he knows all that because he's a woman. That's a woman's life. Every woman knows those things. It's like she is living in a war zone every day of her life. So When I talk to men, it often takes me having to explain how women see things before men can sort of say, oh, I I see my experience of life is very different. So I'll, I'll actually ask the women questions. I'll say, do you get into an elevator if there's a man inside of it and there's no one else? Nope. Do you give information to your roommates about who you're going out with on a date? so that if your body is found later, they'll know who killed you. (laughs) I mean, when we go through all of this, (laughs) do you refuse to park in parking garages for fear of attacks? Men are like, well, no, of course I'd get in the elevator. Well, well, no, I don't give my roommates my dates information. Well, I don't have any problem parking in a parking garage. And when they hear that these are, are things that women are rightfully fearful of, because the very greatest threat to women is men. The very greatest threat to men is men. (laughs) It's eye-opening enough for them that they begin to see that the world that we've created for women is a terribly insecure one. 
just this morning, an article came into my inbox that talks about how the metaverse is no place for women or children, that the new world that men have created, an online world, is also a place where women are assaulted and groped and children are groomed. And (laughs) it seems like every world that men create, even virtual worlds, are not worlds where women could possibly find peace. That's very telling, I think. Extremely telling and extremely stark. So you talk a little bit about how do we dismantle the patrilineal fraternal syndrome, some notions of what is needed. Yeah, well, it depends on, you know, where on that syndrome score you are. So if you're at the extreme of the syndrome where it is highly, highly encoded, then I would be first tackling things like age of marriage for girls and property rights for girls and and old age pensions, because it turns out that providing old age pensions is really an extremely effective way of allowing parents to care more for their daughters than they have been kind of forced to previously. If we're talking about those who are sort of post-syndrome societies, right, our Swedens and our Icelands, then clearly the focus has got to be on violence against women and coercive control and why we're offering impunity for those things. And then in the middle with transition countries, you'd be looking to see which elements of the syndrome are still there and which ones have been sort of mitigated and kind of craft a, uh, you know, a unique approach that would target what are the real problems in that society in the in their first political order. So I, I do think there's a whole range of things that can be done, but it, it does depend on which of these subordinative mechanisms are still at work in your society and which have been moved beyond. I do love, um, we have a couple of chapters on change where we look at historical examples of change. And I hope if, if anyone listening to the podcast reads the book, you know, that they do tackle those last couple of change chapters, because I think there's a lot of rich history involved. I would love to get into that. One thing is, uh, as women changing our our preferences from Mm. (laughs) (laughs) developing a distaste for violent or powerful men, Uh, you know, be suspicious of power imbalance as as a woman that you get into a relationship that is with someone who's vastly more powerful than you. I am totally with you on that. I'm totally with you on that. Part of it, though, involves creating an enforcement mechanism that allows women to feel safe, even if they don't have a powerful man in their life. And so that's one of the drivers there. But I think you're absolutely right that women have to realize that if they enter into marriage or allow their marriage to become very lopsided in terms of power, that there will be a a natural negative spiral in the quality of that relationship. And and that's something that I'm certainly trying to teach my daughters. Uh, (laughs) And uh, some of us have to learn through very hard experience that that is the case. Being taken care of by a powerful male is in the end, actually a very scary thing. It comes with great, great risk. Yeah. 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 All right. Well, I don't want to hold you over your time, even though I want to talk to you so much more. 
really delightful conversation. Yeah. It's just really gratifying as an author to actually see that you've engaged mm -hmm. the work in such a way that we can have kind of a high level conversation about it. It's just, thank you. Okay. You made my day. It's such a pleasure to talk to you and meet you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Subject to Power. You can find the show online at subjecttopower.com or subscribe from wherever you get your podcasts. I would love to hear your thoughts and comments, so please drop a note on the website or even better, take a moment to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Subject to Power is written, hosted, and produced by me, El Kamihira. Mixing is by Peter Wilson. Cover art by B. Johnson and the music is by Beware of Darkness.